Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, as we come into your presence to study your word this morning, and as we lift up these tithes and offerings in your, in your Son's name, we pray you will use them and bless them, O God, as far as the sun shines. We pray you will strengthen the various works of missions that we engage in as a congregation. As we turn to your word, Father, we pray you will show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ, that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And we offer these prayers, O God, help us to see Jesus in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of John's Gospel, and chapter 12, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Now, in the course of the sermon, I'm going to read probably most of this passage, actually, but I want to begin by reading from John 12:36b down to verse 43. This is the Word of God. Now, remember, we're, we're standing in John's gospel. We've just moved out of the first 11 chapters, which are the book of signs, these great seven signs that John records that go along with the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ, and most of which occur in the first 11 chapters, but all the seven signs are there. The first is the wedding of Cana, the second, the healing of the nobleman's son, then John stops numbering them, but he numbers the first two so you know that he's numbering them. And then when you get to the seventh sign of um, Lazarus being raised from the dead, it's an amazing moment because you remember there was a division among the Jews with respect to the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in it and the Sadducees didn't. Now, actually, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed that for the first three days after death, the spirit of the deceased kind of hung around to see if a holy man like Elijah or Elisha would come along and raise them from the dead. But once the body began to rot, the spirit vamushed. And at that point, the Pharisees believed that only God himself, no holy man, only God himself could raise the dead. And the Sadducees believed that not even God could raise the dead after the fourth day. And so it's caused a bit of a stir that Christ has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, we'll come back to that in a second later on in the sermon, but this is the response of the Jews, and you'll find it here in John 12, 36. Listen carefully. This is the Word of God. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs, so many attesting miracles is the word in the Jewish language, it means a miracle that proves a prophet's identity. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I'm going to see in our passage this morning how Jesus views His own life, His own ministry, and His own death in a different way than the Jews view this life and the way that you and I view this life. Jesus looks through this world. It's transparent to Him. He measures things not by how they look on earth, but by how they are before God. He sees, he weighs the weightiness. That's the idea behind the word glory in both Hebrew and Greek. It's it's the idea of something that's weighty, like the difference between a plastic necklace that looks like gold and a real necklace that feels like gold. There's weight to the real thing, right? 
And, and we measure glory by how things look down here to our fellow men. Jesus weighs glory in the scales of infinite and eternal glory, the glory of His Father. And it helps Him maintain His poise as He makes His way through this world. But I want to begin this morning by asking you, as we think in our study on the fear of God, do you struggle with the fear of man? The Jews evidently did here. They believe in Jesus, but it's not a saving faith. It's the kind of faith that we see at the beginning of John's gospel when those saw his signs and they believe in him, but then Jesus says, or in the, in, in the Greek it says, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus himself did not believe in them. Same word, pistou, the Greek. Um, the translation is, Jesus did not entrust himself to them, but it's the same verb. They didn't believe in him, he didn't believe in them. For Jesus had no need for anyone to tell him what was in man, for he himself knew all men, right? Same kind of thing here. These people have a, have, a, have a faith, like the faith of the devil. The devil knows who Christ is, but he doesn't, he's, he's, he's convinced, but he's not converted, right? And the reason is because they, the gravitational pull of man matters more for them, weighs more in their estimation, than the gravitational glory of God. They love the weightiness that comes from man, the glory of man more than the glory of God. And so, they did not confess Jesus because they were frightened about what men would think and about what men would do. They feared the Pharisees. Now, the fear of man takes many guises. In essence, what does it mean to fear man? The fear of man brings a snare. Um, Proverbs says, Proverbs 29, verse 25, to fear man is to allow men to control you the way only God should. The smiles of men, the frowns of men, the opinions of men is to allow the, the appearance of men to control you the way only God should. That's what it means to fear men. And there's a great little book I'll recommend to you by Ed Welch from the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation called, and it sums up this problem beautifully, When People Are Big, and God is small. That's essentially the problem when you fear men. Your view of man is too big, and your view of God is too small. And it's something we all struggle with. And in the book, Welch basically works through how, how that, the psychology of that, how that works in our souls, right? We think people will see us, but they'll not like what they see. And then we think people will reject us. And then people will hurt us, They'll see us, they will judge us, they will reject us, they will hurt us. And human beings will do almost anything to, fear, to, to avoid the disapproval gaze of men. It's like, being, like an ant or a beetle caught under the magnifying glass of a toddler. That little beam is very uncomfortable when it's focused on the, the beetle's back. And so to be frowned on by men is very painful. Do you struggle with that? Let me ask you some questions this morning. How do you feel about yourself? Do you like yourself? Are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you easily embarrassed? Like this week I was driving along the road and I saw one of you driving down the other, other way down the road, and you were obviously shouting at someone on the phone. You were very cross. And um, you didn't know, though, it was me watching you. But if you did know, would you have been embarrassed? You might have been, because that's not the way you, you normally like to look. You're all smiley and happy and warm normally, right? Uh, are you easily embarrassed? Maybe you're thinking, no, was it me? I'll not tell you. Are you concerned about what other people think of you? Do you compare yourself to other people? How they look, how they dress, um, what kind of car they drive, what kind of house they live in, how does their yard look? Are you concerned about their opinion? This week I worked with in the yard with 
uh, my brother DeWitt. He's almost 30 years older than me, and he worked me into the ground. And I literally collapsed. I had, I had heat, heat exhaustion. I didn't wear a hat. That was a problem. But I had, I, we were moving 250-pound um, railway ties, 14 of them, and digging holes for them and putting them in as a kind of a, a landscape border, long story. Anyway, um, but after, you know, four or five hours out in the heat, I literally collapsed in the driveway, in the, in the garden, in the garage, and had the fan on me. And uh, Hannah almost came to give me an IV drip, and, and um, she did, really did. And DeWitt kept on working, and then he went home and vacuumed the whole house and washed the floors. Now, the reason I got into that mess was I normally paced myself in the garden, and every, in my mind, I'm thinking every, every cable, every tie, every, and we move one, I'm going to get a glass of water because I dehydrate. And I didn't do that. He didn't do that, so I just kept on working. I didn't want him to think I was a wuss, right? <laughs> and so... <laughs> uh, I just kept on working, and then I, oh, poof. Uh, it's very embarrassing. But, but the fear of man, what people think of us can be powerfully motivating, can't it? What do you think of yourself? Perhaps you're here. We live in a culture that's full of the idea of low self-esteem. It's important to like yourself, and if you don't, then that's pathological. In his book, Welch says, um, he speaks of the paradox of low self-esteem. The paradox of low self-esteem, he says, usually means that I think too highly of myself, I'm too self-involved. I feel I deserve better than what I have. And the reason I feel bad about myself is that I aspire to something more. I want just a few minutes of greatness. I'm a peasant who wants to be a king. When you're in the grips of low self-esteem, it's painful, and it certainly doesn't feel like pride. But I believe that this is the dark, quieter side of pride. Thwarted pride is low self-esteem. What do other people think about you? Do you worry about that? Do you ever struggle with peer pressure, young people? Of course you do. You know, what shoes are you wearing? Do you have Nike shorts or some no-name brand from Target? Um, you know, does your mom buy you the, the polo shirt with the, the whale on it? Or do you have to wear the IZ one that your dad wears, the IZOD? Like, no, it's dad's shirt. I want, I want the cool one, right? Um, and clothes maketh a man. And, and, and how you, how you, what will my peers think if I look like an idiot going to school? Maybe you lie, little white lies, because you're worried that people will see through the facade of truth and see what you really like. And so you paper this kind of like a, like a, like a painted egg that's empty in the inside. You have this carefully manicured um, exterior that you paint, and some of the paint you use is lies, half-truths. Some people are so broken, I think, inside that they actually present a disheveled appearance to the world. And the reason they do that is they don't want to disappoint you. So they look scruffy and disheveled, and the idea is, I'm going to appear like nothing just in case you're disappointed by thinking I'm something. It's a problem for us all. What about your colleagues at work? What do they think of you? Do you find yourself do you find it hard to say no? Your, your bandwidth is used up. You're under pressure, and somebody asks you to do something for them, and you just can't say no because you're frightened they'll think you're a waster. Or maybe you have imposter syndrome. You may be very competent, but you're, you, you, people may think well of you, but you think, oh, you're always worried. Like the pastor, he's, all, he's only as good as his last sermon. He's always got to come up with another one for next weekend. Otherwise, they'll know the truth. Maybe you find yourself always second, you find it hard to make a decision because you're frightened of making the wrong one, people thinking you're stupid. What about your spouse? We long for our spouse to respect us men, don't we? we lo- and respect means that our wives look at us and think we are a person of power, that we can get things done, that we are a force to be reckoned with. And yet, so often, it's the little things. Perhaps your children ask for a, a Coke, and you say, no, no Coke today, children. And your, your wife says, oh, no, don't be silly, Dad. You can have a Coke, little, little child. And immediately you think, oh, she, she just died. Even that just little thing, it just is, and you find the temper rising that your wife would cross your word in public, which women, ladies, you should not do, by the way. But nonetheless, um, you know, it's like, um, Or maybe, ladies, you, you, you want your husband to cherish you and love you. And it's the little things. 
you're talking to him and he's, he's, he's on his phone checking his email and it just, you just feel he's, he's not, not feeling the love right now and it, it eats at you. The most dangerous, I think, form of pride is the person who actually does very well in life because one of the ways we, deep down in our heart of hearts, right, we know that we are nothing. There's a deep insecurity in us. And we combat that by trying to be competent in all these different fields. And some people are so competent in almost every field that they, they, they can actually believe, I'm at, the top of life's, um, I'm at the top of life's ladder. I can look down on everybody else. I'm okay. I'm prettier than they are, better looking than they are, fitter than they are, more successful, richer than they are. And Welch says that's the most dangerous form of pride of the fear of man, successful fear of man. They think they've made it. They have more than other people. They feel good about themselves. But he says their lives are still defined by other people rather than God, where they come on the ladder. They're at the top of the ladder, but it's still they're defining themselves by their place on the ladder. Some at the bottom, but they're at the top. But deep down in their heart of hearts, they know with Van Marsh that once you get to the top, you ain't got nowhere else to go but down. And we also knew, don't we, that success never really quite scratches every itch, even if you're uber successful. Um, we still know inside there's an emptiness that's not quite satisfied. And you hear that in the lives of the, of the pop stars. I was reminded recently, uh, a couple of stories, Whitney Houston, this famous singer, he was so beautiful and so gifted. You remember the song, I Will Always Love You, and her voice is transcendent. It's one of the best vocals, pop vocals I've ever heard. It's amazing. Those dwiddly bits are just unbelievably difficult to sing. Um, there probably are some pieces in opera that are harder to sing, but maybe not many. It was an amazing vocal. And um, she was so gifted, and yet she was insecure. On the set, um, Kevin Costner said after she died that she was always doubting herself. She was, she was never felt she was quite ready. She was insecure, worried about not measuring up. She always thought she didn't look right. In her mind, there were a thousand things that were wrong. You had to hold her hand, he said. I told her she looked beautiful, but I could still see the doubt in her eyes. And then she'd go back to the, to the, to the dressing room for 20 more minutes. She'd scrape off all the makeup and put it on herself because she didn't think the makeup stars had put it on properly. And then she went out to the lights and all her makeup melted and began dripping down her face. And she ran off to the dressing room and he went after her. And he said, the Whitney I knew, despite her success and worldwide fame, still wondered, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Will they like me? It was the burden, I suppose, that made her great, but it was also the part that caused her to stumble in the end, I think. Or Madonna, he said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and, and, and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And that's the essence of it, isn't it? It's this sense that there's something wrong with us. We don't measure up. And we don't. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden when they ate the fruit in the garden. And in that moment, they didn't become naked, but they knew they were naked. And Adam and Eve took the little fig leaves, and Adam made little fig leaf speedo for himself. And Eve took a little big leaf bikini for herself, and they covered up. Why? Because they were ashamed. Why? Because they, they were frightened of being seen as they really were, of being known, and to be known as a disappointment, someone who falls short, someone who doesn't measure up, someone who lets them down. Eve was scared. Adam would look at her and say, you know, I wish I hadn't married you. I thought you'd be better than this. And Adam was concerned. Eve would look at him and think, I thought you'd be better than this. And that desire haunted him. It made the presence of other people uncomfortable. And then God comes down, and the presence of God is unbearable. They run and hide from God because they can't bear to be surrounded by His all-seeing eye. 
And this morning in John 12, I want to present before you the glory of Jesus as our Savior and also as our example. He's a great example of how to escape this rat race. And you, let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1. We see here in these verses after the glorious resurrection of Lazarus. At the beginning, Nicodemus was like, we know, we Pharisees know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Now they're, they're saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God, but no man can do the things that you're doing even as God is with him. They're just, it's unbelievable, right? And we see Jesus coming back to Bethany where Lazarus was, and you see a, a woman who loved Jesus and a man who loved money and a Savior who could tell the difference. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, dear Martha, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She's pouring out her devotion. It's the most precious thing she owned. It's tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume. And she breaks it upon Christ's feet in love and devotion. And then Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? and given to the poor. That's like a year's worth of wages. A denarii was the wage of a working man. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have always with you, but you do not always have me. And what Christ is saying there is, Martha's realized she's anointing me for my burial. Um, it's, it's got into Mary's mind, not Martha, sorry, Mary's mind, that if Lazarus is to live, I must die. I am the resurrection and the life, that Lazarus isn't the only one to be resurrected. His resurrection is because of Christ's resurrection. And for Christ to be resurrected, he must die. And somehow she connected all that, and she is anointing Lazarus for, or sorry, anointing Jesus for his burial. I might not get a chance to do it after you're dead. She's saying, so I'll do it now before you're dead. And she pours out her love upon Jesus, and he knows she loves me and Lazarus, or um, Judas loves money. And you know, this Jesus is here this morning, and he knows where you're at. He's saying to you and to me, where are you this morning? Where's your heart? Is your heart enthralled with the glory of God, or is your heart enthralled with some other earthly glory, like Judas's? When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him who was, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made a plans to put Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus, and because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's madness. They want to kill the man that God has raised. It's absolute madness. But the reason is, right, they're frightened. Because if you look back in John 11, verse 45, after Lazarus is raised, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what Jesus has done. You've got to come. This guy has raised Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day. Only God could do this. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, sorry, I did that bit. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? I mean, this guy has done a sign, and a sign means he's proven he's Messiah. We'd better believe in him. No, that's not what happened. This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We will lose our place, our position as the chief of the land, the rulers, the, the guardians of orthodoxy, the, the guardians of the worship of the temple, the, 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 
the A to the Z of Judaism, we'll lose our place. And, and they're showing the gravitational pull of their place in the temple and the worship of God was more important than the gravitational pull of God the Son Himself, the blindness of it. So, we must kill Jesus and Lazarus. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so, at that moment, as Christ is going toward Jerusalem, He does something. And this is amazing. Christ is going to be crucified. He's not just going to die. It's worse than that. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus on the cross because the cross was an unspeakably shameful way to die. You were stripped naked and hung at eye level, your feet just a few inches off the ground, not high up as the paintings show you. So, walkers-by could walk past with your genitals exposed as urine and feces drip down your legs and laugh at you and mock you. If they wanted to kill him, they would have stoned him, but they wanted to break him and humiliate him and crush him, and so they demanded him to be crucified, and it's terrible. And worse than that, on the cross, Jesus is going to become sin. The full weight of your sin, your pornography, your gossip, your lying, your cheating, your sex before marriage, your sex outside of marriage, your um, adultery, the liaisons you've had maybe with the prostitutes in the past or even in the present, your bitterness, your wrath, your rage, your discontentment, your, your malice, your forgetfulness to turn off your cell phone coming to church. All of those things became Christ. It's the photographic negative of justification. When you're justified, it's not. It's more than God does does not treat you as a sinner, even though you are. Justification means God treats you as righteous because the righteousness of Christ belongs to you. You're united to Him. He becomes you, and you become He. And His righteousness becomes yours, really yours. Now, by the same logic, though, all your sin become His. God does not treat Jesus as if He was a sinner. God treats Jesus as a sinner because on the cross He becomes sin. It's unspeakable. I mean, feel the weight of that. I mean, I mean, think about how you and I try to escape blame in our homes. You're cooking salmon. Whoever cooks salmon, maybe the husband or the wife, whatever. So you're, you're cooking the salmon, and you get distracted, and you mess it up, and it, comes, it should be medium rare and flaky and moist and pink and wonderful, and it comes out like the bottom of a Birkenstock. <laughs> and your spice is coming into the salmon with a steak knife, and uh, unsuccessfully, and they go, someone's a bit tough tonight, love, isn't it? And you take it personally. Oh, just this, this the thought that you messed up the salmon. You had one job to do, and you messed it up. It's, you feel the need, it was the kids, they distracted me. Or you just, you didn't help me. I was doing this and that, and I left it on the grill too long. It even, even bearing the weight of a messed up dinner is unbearable. Christ bore the weight of all of the sin of all of his people through all of time. He becomes, can you imagine it, right? He's on the way to that. How did he get his head on straight? Well, part of it, the answer was, he measured himself by Scripture. Notice what happens. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. He's going back to Scripture. And Zechariah chapter 9, now turn there with me. Now, some of you aren't going to turn there because you think, I can't find Zechariah. I'm going to go to Isaiah and go, do I go back or if I don't know where to go? Help. And uh, you're terrified. That's fear of man. But if you go to Matthew and then back to Malachi and then back, you'll find Zechariah. 
Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt on the foal of a donkey. Now, John just quotes that bit because papyrus is expensive and he doesn't want to go to too much length, but he expects you to know the whole chapter, and the Jews did, of course. What comes next? Why is he coming? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So far, so good. He's going to bring peace between God and man. The war between God and man is going to be done, and the war separating man from man is going to be fixed by the cross. But that victory, that salvation is going to be very expensive for this coming Savior. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. As Christ is coming to Jerusalem, He's understanding His mission, His life, this moment, the shame of the cross by understanding it from the Word. He's going to bring great salvation to the world. The kingdom of God's going to come. Peace is going to come. Heaven's going to come. Sin's going to be vanquished, but there'll be blood to pay, hell to pay, the blood of the covenant, which will be His blood to shed. And he, he, he defines His life not by looking to His feelings. How does it feel? Jolly rotten, right? No, He defines His life by the Word of God which is exactly the thing that you must do when trials come, when they're difficult. You think, oh, maybe it's a big trial, or about eating your burnt salmon, or it's a, a, a small trial, or a huge trial. And how do I cope? You define it by the Word of God. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You refuse to give in to your feelings, and you bring it all back to the Word of God. When you look at your life, and you're so disappointed. My husband's failed me. My wife's failed me. My children have failed me. Everyone's failing me. My life's a mess. And you think, oh, woe is me. And you want to sit in the pity pot and feel sorry for yourself. And you remember, no, my father works all things out after the counsel of his will. In his book are written all of the days that were ordained for me before there was yet one of them. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you make sense of your life by going to Scripture and looking at it through the lens of Scripture, not by what do men think, but by what does God think. You, you want to share the gospel with somebody, and you're frightened. They'll reject me. They'll think I'm stupid. And you think, no, no, hold on a second. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him also, I will be ashamed when, my, when I come in the glory of my Father and the holy angels. And you battle one shame with another. Will I be ashamed before men now in time? Will I be ashamed before the Lord Christ and the angels forever and ever? And as bad as it feels to be ashamed of, have men ashamed of you? What will that feel like if Christ and the holy angels are ashamed of you? You go back to the Bible like Jesus did. Back to John 12. We need to move on quickly. We were here 10 minutes ago in the mornings in the first sermon. So we've got, to, we've got to pick up the pace a little bit. So John 12. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples' problem was they didn't understand Scripture. They needed the Holy Spirit to come to enlighten their mind. It's a constant. We need to be in the Bible saying, Lord, open my eyes. Help me understand these things. Otherwise, we'll not have the poise that Christ had making His way through this world. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
As the, as the Gentiles turn to Jesus, he sees this as a decisive moment, a hinge in the gospel. He, up to that point, he said, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But now the hour has come, the, 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 the hour of glory. Now he's about to face his deepest shame, to be stripped naked and beaten and spat upon and rejected and cursed and to become the sin of the world in the presence of the holiness of God. And yet Jesus sees through all of that and finds a way to despise the shame of it by seeing it from God's perspective. It'll be his lowest moment before men, but it'll bring the greatest glory to God. He sees things not from man's perspective. He saw things from God's perspective, and it'll bring glory to God. Now, Christ is not, is not a robot. It, the thought of this is terrifying. The climax is in Gethsemane, but it's, it's beginning to break upon him now in the finite understanding of his human mind. Christ in his human nature had a human mind. He, the, the, the dawn, it's beginning to dawn on him with horror the full enormity of what it will mean for him, a man, to bear the infinite wrath of God. He says, now, now, my soul is troubled. It's not easy for him. He doesn't just sail through it with breathtaking ease. It costs him. Now, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's how he, he overcomes the shame. He reaches through the shame and lays hold of the glory. Father, glorify your name. I want to glorify you. And there's a thunderous voice. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The glory of God revealed in the death of his Son. And, and, and Christ's whole perspective is, is shaped by what's happening upon the cross from God's perspective. And why is Christ doing this? For three reasons. First of all, to destroy God's enemies. Verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world, Satan, be cast out. He's also doing it to deliver God's people. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to die. So Jesus is here saying, in a sense, that uh, I, I, he sees glory in the cross not by what it'll feel like for him. It'll be awful. It'll be the loss of God and the, the, the loss of God's love, at least, and the presence only of God's wrath. It'll be an ocean of wrath without a drop of mercy. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be endless torment compressed into those hours of time upon the cross, but without abbreviation. His infinite person will bear the infinite stroke of God. No highlight reel, but the full, endless torment of hell will be shoved down His throat upon the cross. But what kept Him going, it'll destroy the devil, and it'll save you. As I am lifted up, I'll draw you to Myself. And that's what kept Him going. That's what energized Him to bear the shame. He saw through the shame and saw the glory, the devil's destruction, and His people's salvation and God's exaltation. It's amazing when people do that, you know. The thing that drew me to Christ the first time, the first time I think I ever really thought about Christianity from a new perspective was a friend of mine in school, Andrew Giffen. Andrew Giffen was the kind of guy you'd call a complete dweeb. He was, he was not very sporty. He was not very cool. Um, and, but he was godly. And we would watch together... Um, Romeo and Juliet, not me, him and I, but in the, in the English class, English literature class. We were teenagers. And Romeo and Juliet was on, and it was the Roman Polanski version in which there are pretty graphic sex scenes. And Juliet exposes much more of her body than should be seen on TV, and it was there for all to behold, and all the boys were very happy to behold it, except Andrew Giffen. Whenever 
the sex scenes were on, Andrew Giffen closed his eyes and bowed his head. And of course, all the boys laughed at him. But I looked at him, and I thought, that's remarkable. He fears something worse than the rejection of human beings. And it was the first thing that began to turn me from darkness to light. That somehow, somewhere, there's something, there's a greater glory than the frowns and laughs of men. And Andrew was doing what Christ was doing. He viewed the shame of men and the shame of earth from the perspective of heaven by the Word of God and by the glory of God. And from that perspective, there was only one thing to do. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Christ is playing in the language of, of um, the, I am the light of the world, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Um, the light is among you for a little while longer. It's going to be taken away. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So there's two choices. There's light and there's darkness. There's a light to live by and a darkness to stumble by. Those are the two choices. Follow Christ. You have light. Turn away from Christ. You're in the darkness. And then you see that coming into, into being in the next part of the passage. The Jews who don't believe, they choose to walk in the darkness. And look, look what happens. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid themselves from them. What's He doing? He's turning out the light. He's removing Himself from them. He's removing from them the possibility ever again to see the light, and He's casting them out into the darkness. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who is believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's not just, will you believe? The, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you've got to understand it's not just a case of, will you believe the gospel? The real question is, can you believe the gospel? And the answer is, no, you can't. And the reason you can't is because you won't. You hate Christ so much, you'd rather live in the darkness than come into the light. You're like a teenager when the light comes on in the morning. Get up, son. And they roll over and close their head under the pillow because they don't like the light. And you're saying, no, I don't want that to be true. And you're turning away. That's the, that's the way I was before Christ saved me. And, and that, it's not that we, it is, we can't see because we won't see, and we won't see because we've closed our eyes. And this passage is saying that is a very dangerous thing to do because if you close your eyes to the light, eventually God will give you what you want and cast you out into the darkness forever like these people. Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. As I said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. But these people from the authorities, they did believe. They, they, knew, it was, they knew he was the Savior. But it was an idea of too many. They couldn't quite bring themselves to step out and, into saving faith and commit themselves to Christ because they feared the frowns of men. And the glory of man and what man could do weighed more in their twisted little hearts than what the glory of God was and could have done. And so they're cast out into the darkness. Now, why is that in the Bible? That's in the Bible, quite simply, to make you say, Lord, please don't do that to me. It's like Hezekiah when it says in the Bible, God removed his spirit from Hezekiah to test his heart that he might know what was in him. 
Remember Ralph Davis in class saying, why is that in the Bible? It's there because it's meant to make you say, Lord, don't do that to me. You know what's in my heart. Don't, don't, don't test me. I'll fail. Please have mercy. It's a reminder. Remember in John 2, the, 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 um, whenever it says, Jesus had no need for anyone to tell him what was in man, for he himself knew all men. That's the last verse of John 2. And then John 3 verse 1 says, and along came a man, Nicodemus. He says, hey, we know that you're from God. No one can do what you're doing unless God's with him. What's the deal? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's a man who's the guardian of orthodoxy in the Judaism. He knows all of the dots and all of the T crosses and everything in the Bible. He knows everything about God, but knows nothing of God. And the reason is he's still dead in his sins. And Jesus says, until you are born again, you, you're asking about me. I need to tell you about you. Until you're born again, you can't even see or enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is, this is meant to, this is the natural. Human beings are unable to see these things. And the only hope is not that you would suddenly wise up, but that God would suddenly wake you up and revive you and bring you from death to life and open your eyes that you might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So that's, the, that's response number one, unbelief. But there's a second response, faith. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Oh, Jesus says, look to me, come to me. And that's essentially one of the purposes of the church. In in the world, we live in a world of darkness. If you don't believe me, just read the news. New York, was it New York this week? Uh, convicted sex offender, for no reason whatsoever, punched a 74-year-old woman, I think, in the face, caved, caved in her maxilla. She's arre- he's arrested by the police, charged with attempted murder because she's in hospital with brain swelling and all kinds of problems. He's taken to court, and he's arrested, charged with attempted murder, and the judge reduces his, his, his crime from attempted murder to aggravated assault and lets him go without any bail. And you think, my goodness, there's not just darkness in the criminal's heart, but there's darkness in our judge's heart. And it's writ large over the country. It's a world of darkness, and we live in that world. And things which are good are called bad, and things that are bad are called good. And fools march to justify their right to sin. I saw somebody yesterday on, on TV saying, my pronouns are hard to explain. She had a blue nose. And she said, my pronouns are they and them and clown and clown self. I'm thinking, you know, Ben Shapiro said, I'm going to give it to her. I'm going to call her clown and clown self because she is a clown. But, I mean, it was fun. We shouldn't laugh, I suppose. But the man, they don't even know who they are. They're calling themselves a clown and don't realize they're speaking the truth. That's a world of darkness. And we don't know what's up and what's down and what's in and what's out. And we come to the church and Christ comes down in His light and reveals Himself. And we need to be here morning and evening because we need the Word of God to, to pour light into our hearts and minds and straighten us out. And Christ is here. Because I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Christ is the Father's messenger boy sent into this church. It's not me speaking. Christ is here. He's saying, I offer you light. I offer you darkness. I offer you life. I offer you death. I offer you faith. I offer you unbelief. Don't you want to learn to live in the light? And essentially, sanctification is coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, take this book and pour out your Spirit 
and hide this book in my heart that I might abide in you and that your words might abide in me and that I might walk as a son and daughter of light. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And only that is the way to escape the fear of man, is to walk among a forest of, of um, dogwoods and then lift up your eyes and see this mighty sequoia, redwood with its top in the heavens. And the dogwoods are men, little saplings, and the, and the sequoia is the Lord Christ, a tree planted by streams of water whose roots are in the earth and his top is beyond the highest star. And to meet him and say, I've met a true man and I've met the true God and he brings me home to the Father, and I will not fear men because I do fear him. And we need to learn that lesson every day. It's like the living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is always crawling off the altar. And you learn that now. You learn that. You think, I'll never fear man again, but you will. And I will too. And the answer is fellowship with Jesus that shows us what's big and what's small. God is big and man is small. And the last time you spend with Jesus, God will seem very, very small, and man will seem very, very big. And you open up from down, and then from out, and light from darkness. And what a terrible problem that will be. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus and his glory and for his help. Please come, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Save sinners this morning from darkness to light. Open the eyes of the blind and stop the ears of the deaf. Quicken the hearts of the dead. We're not sick, we're dead. We can't believe, Jesus says, because we won't believe. But Lord Jesus, you're the one who told a man who couldn't straighten out his arm to stretch out his arm. You told a dead man to come out of the tomb, and those men did what they couldn't do because there's power in your word. May your word have power here this morning, Lord Jesus, and be quick and lively in the hearts of your people, saving your enemies and building up your sons and daughters in their most holy faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.